Welcome to the Hidden Wire podcast. This is episode 674, my interview with Steve Saylor, talking about science and spirituality. Enjoy. Okay, ladies and gentlemen, welcome to another interview at the Hidden Wire podcast. Today, I have a cracker of a guest, Steve Taylor. He's written a couple of, he's written many books, actually, a couple of books. He's written several books and I think the one that I sort of reached out to him was his newest one called Spiritual Science, Why Science Needs Spirituality to Make Sense of the World. But he's written, um, I think it's about 10 books. And the one that we really sort of delve into at the start of this conversation is the one prior to Spiritual Science called The Leap, The Psychology of Spiritual Awakening. So we really talk about you know, how most of us in the human society are walking around asleep and how we need to wake up. We really need to find that level of awareness to bring a greater sense of joy and fulfillment, a purpose and meaning to life. Um, at the start, it sort of it can throw you a little bit off because I feel that sometimes people get scared about some of these topics, might think they're a little bit woo-woo, and perhaps it's just the wording or the terminology that we use, but we sort of clear that up, and then we delve into a really beautiful conversation, one that I actually walked away with, um, really thinking about my life and assessing um, certain facets as well. But it's true, we often do walk around asleep, so we need to wake up, and I think the idea of uh, bringing spirituality um, to our lives and you can see the pendulum swing is becoming more paramount um, in globally now you can see the shift in culture the shift in consciousness um, certainly I think that's going to be a great thing going forward and that's what we're talking about in this episode guys so enjoy it my conversation with Steve Taylor cheers G'day Steve and welcome to the Hidden White Podcast how are you today? I'm pretty good thanks yeah thanks for having me on the podcast over there in Manchester I believe is that right? Yeah, I'm here in the UK. Yeah, it's the morning here in the UK. Lovely day. It, it is actually, yeah, it's a beautiful <laughs> um, autumn day. Um, yeah, it's beautiful, clear blue sky, oh, that's very nice. bright sunshine. It's beautiful. Well, we've just been having the storms coming through here. Um, had some cracking thunder, which is uh, oh, wow. kind of nice. I, I enjoy it, actually, but um, it's cooled the place down a little bit. But uh, welcome to the show, Steve. You're a, um, you're a fascinating guy. You've got a lot of work there. You've got uh, 10 books published by the looks of it. Um, correct me if I'm mm-hmm. wrong. Um, you, you know, you, you work in the, the field of psychology. Um, you're obviously very much into um, spirituality, I suppose. So all these things are of, of great interest to me and, and the audience as well. But um, I'm going to throw it over to you first of all, Steve. Give us a little bit of background about yourself, what you're passionate about, why you, you know, what, what your interests are and, and how you got sort of... Um, immersed into this field of, of our study and um, and interest? Uh, my main area of interest is uh, psychology and spirituality. Hmm. Um, so when, when I was a teenager, I had a, um, a, a number of what I now realize were spiritual experiences. And basically that means I had a feeling of, um, you know, intense connection to my surroundings, uh, a sense that everything had become interconnected around me and um, the sense of meaning and harmony. Can you give us euphoria. an example? Um, uh, what from my own, from my teenagers? Yeah, from back like then? you go back to you know spiritual experiences. I, I, mm-hmm. I guess for myself, I can't think of a spiritual sort of experience in my life that I've had. But maybe I'm looking at it wrongly, or yeah, mm. just just for clarity, I guess. Mm. What what is a spiritual experience? Okay, uh, well, one of them was, um, there was a time when we were on holiday as a family in Wales, a beautiful part of the UK, mm-hmm. and um, I remember sort of wandering around the fields around our bungalow, and I suddenly walked over a gate, and suddenly I was surrounded by this this hill that I didn't, hadn't noticed before, the, the, the hill was full of sheep, and hmm. I just, it was so beautiful that I just stood still and watched it for a few, for a few minutes. And after a while, it was almost as if somebody had pressed a switch and suddenly my awareness of the surroundings became much more intense. You know, the the colors became much more vivid. Everything became much more beautiful. I was just awestruck. I looked at the sky and was awestruck by the the shapes of the clouds and how real, how kind of, you know, how three dimensional and incredibly real they seemed. So everything was kind of lit up with this kind of heightened reality. And then I sensed that everything was somehow interconnected, that the the fields, the trees, the sky, the clouds, somehow there was, you know, something underlying them, which sort of brought them together into oneness 
there was a sense that well, everything I could see was a manifestation of something deeper, some kind of underlying spiritual force, if you like. Hmm. And then I sensed that my own being was part of that too. I felt somehow that the division between outside and inside had faded away. And I was somehow part of the surroundings and my own being was part of this kind of spiritual force too. So there was, there was this tremendous sense of, of union and um, this tremendous sort of heightened, extremely vivid reality. Hmm. Sounds like you're saying you might experience on an acid trip or something. Yeah, well, it's it's not dissimilar, you know. Um, yeah, yeah, it's that, that sense of, you know, almost as if the familiar world comes to life and becomes much more real. That happens, that can happen in under psychedelics. I think that there is a sense in which our normal vision of the world is very narrow and limited, almost mm. as if we're looking through a a veil of familiarity. We're only sort of perceiving 10% of what's really there. And I don't mean that there are lots of sort of strange esoteric phenomena. I just mean we're only perceiving the actual natural world around us in a very kind of diluted, in a very kind of uh, filtered way. Yeah, well, when you when you sort of explained it then, you know, on the very, uh, I suppose, the fundamental of, of your experience was, you know, you just were really present um, and mm. awake to noticing everything that was going on rather than distracted by chaos and, and the reality that we're sort of sucked into. But uh, on another level, it, mm. it sort of seemed, um, in, in some of the words you use, they're kind of like something quite phenomenal that perhaps many of us are, are not going to experience in our lives or something like that. You know, something very woo-woo, I guess, and maybe a bit yeah, off-putting I, I, in a way. <clears throat> Well, I wouldn't, I wouldn't call it woo-woo because it, it is something very natural. It is mm. part of the world, which we, we normally we sort of screen it out of our normal perception. But, I, but, I, but children, young children, for example, you know, I'm convinced that young children experience this kind of vision almost all the time, you know, maybe until the age of eight or nine years old, seven or eight years old. Do, do you, you think know, it's just the some... words we use, but like when you said, you know, I suddenly felt this connective unison with everything that we're all sort of connected and... and... Yeah, I don't know. Some, sometimes the terminology we use might, might sort of... Yeah. I mean, I, I, t- I actually, in my work as a psychologist, I actually mm. tend to avoid the word spiritual. Yeah. Because some people associate it with religion. Uh, some people associate it with, uh, you know, kind of esoteric anomalous phenomena. But uh, So I, I like to call these experiences awakening experiences. and Because what happens in them is really that we just become more aware of reality we our awareness expands it becomes more intense so it is like waking up I and mean, there, there is a sense in which we're normally asleep and uh, the sleep is so normal to us that we don't realize it you know we think that we think that sleep is our normal you know is normal when actually it's a kind of uh, slightly aberrational state that mm. we live in yeah i'm just reading a great book about sleep at the moment actually but um on another topic um so what we, I mean, was your family quite spiritual? Is this something that, you know, was quite new to you, I guess, in your teenage years? Um, I certainly can't uh, remember having such, such sort of moments of clarity. Certainly now there's, there's times where I have been more appreciative of those moments. Um, perhaps I'll, I wouldn't be able to describe them like you do, but yeah. Hmm. Well, no, my family wasn't spiritual at all. You know, we were completely non-religious, uh, apart from football. You know, we sort of, football was our religion. We were kind of like fundamental, my father was a kind of <laughs> fundamentalist football fan yeah. at Manchester United. But um, but apart from that, there was no religion at all, um, no spirituality at all. So I had these experiences, and it was quite difficult for me to make sense of them. I thought there was maybe something wrong with me. Oh, really? And uh, Yeah, because I, I, did, I didn't understand them. I thought maybe I was, you know, slightly, you know, slightly crazy. Um, and, you know, a couple of times I tried to talk to other people about them and they didn't understand. So it was quite difficult. It took me you know, a few years to make sense of them. It was only when I started to read books on uh, on spiritual experiences or mystical experiences later on, uh, when I learned meditation, then I began to understand, you know, that what I had were awakening experiences which are you know which are quite common and uh, there are you know there are very many reports of them um in practically every culture around the world yeah i'm, I'm just curious like when you say that it, you know you felt there was something wrong to you i mean that must have been a pretty full-on experience to actually have those those that, that thought that self-doubt perhaps you know um 
that something else was going on that you know just was unusual or totally unexpected. Um, unexpected. Yeah, but yeah, it, it was difficult, and um, you know, and it was you know another, another difficulty was that I found it quite difficult to to be normal. What I thought was normal, I found I was very introverted. I found it difficult to speak to people, so I felt okay. quite alienated, quite quite depressed and alienated for a long time. Was that, was say, that you know, from these experiences you felt that or was that sort of how you no. felt as, as a teenager just in general? Yeah, well, I think it was linked to the experiences because mm. I felt that I was different and I, I felt that was, I was abnormal. You know, mm. I couldn't be the way that my, you know, my family expected me to be or my, the way my culture expected me to be. I couldn't behave in that normal way. Okay. Um, so, yeah, so that was why, you know, I felt alienated. And it was only really, you know, as I say, when my, in my early 20s, when I began to understand myself and see my own experiences in the light of other people's experiences and, and realize that I wasn't mad, you know, or if I was mad, there were a heck of a lot of, of other mad people. <laughs> so well, I wasn't alone. So, I mean, I guess, I mean, you've probably met a lot of people um, like that that have had similar experiences to yourself now, I'm sure. But, um, I mean, are, are there those of, of, of us that are just more sort of aware and awake um, to reality, to life? than others is is that the case and perhaps that was your reality that's the world that you were living in because of you know whatever preconditions Mm. upbringing you had yeah i think so i mean um i mean one of my strongest um intuitions has always been that what we think of you know i mentioned this briefly before what we think of as normal human awareness is actually very limited and constricted and there, there are some ways in which it's very it's very misleading it's almost pathological in some ways so i've always sensed that you know, we need to, uh, you know, transcend the limitations of normal awareness and become aware of a, a wider, more intense reality. We need to expand our awareness. Hmm. And and that, that's basically what spirituality is in its pure form. Spirituality is about expanding awareness. It's nothing to do with God or religion. It's about transformation. Spirituality is about uh, expanding, transcending the limitations of our normal state. And becoming more connected to other people, more connected to nature, and even more connected to ourselves. It's about realizing that you know there are, you know there are there are depths of of being, there are depths of consciousness inside us which we're not normally aware of, and mm. which we can experience. Um, you know, for example, in states of meditation, um, or you know, in different contexts. You know, one of the things I've tried to do in my research is to establish the the contexts. Or situations which give give rise to awakening experiences, and um, I found that there are three main contexts. One of them is okay. nature contact mm-hmm. contact with nature. Another is meditation, uh, or some form of kind of spiritual practice, and the other one is um, sort of paradoxically intense psychological turmoil, such as depression or bereavement, um, illness, and so forth. It's hmm. an interesting one. Yes, yeah, certainly. Um now, we've talked about the, the benefits of, of going into nature um, with past guests on the show. Meditation is a big one that often comes up. It's, it's you know, very trendy, I guess, at the moment, isn't it, um, in mm, the Western cultures mm. at least. But um, that last one, that's that's interesting, psychological turmoil. And, um, yeah, so when you're, when you're at the the worst of, of your state of being, you know, what, there's a, there's a something that nudges you to have more moments of, uh, I don't know, awakening experiences, is it? Yeah, uh, it's quite strange, but um, it is. In, in, Sounds in, my, in my research, yeah, I found that around a third of awakening experiences are triggered by um, intense turmoil or trauma. And yeah, there's a strange way in which um, trauma or turmoil can sort of break down our normal sense of self, um, almost like um, like a building that collapses in an earthquake. You know, the, the mm. intense stress collapses the building. And when that collapse happens, you know, it's almost as if something new or a new sense of being arises inside us. It's almost like we are normally trapped inside um, this building, sort of looking at reality through the windows of this building. Then it collapses um, in the earthquake and suddenly we're in the open space and we're, we're in contact with nature. And, you know, we can feel the open space around us and everything becomes more expansive and more real. Yeah. So it, is, it sounds paradoxical, but it kind of makes sense as well. Yeah, it does actually. When you explain it, like I mean, you, you, know, you hear of people that have near-death experiences that um, 
you know, sort of come out of that and, and just change ex- pretty much everything about how mm. they were living their life. And, um, yeah, certainly I guess that, that intense level of suffering or pain that people exist, um, sometimes they just start to sort of appreciate what's more important than perhaps some of the things that they thought um, was important or thought yeah. were a part of reality and, and maybe they then, you know, awaken to uh, breaking free from that or forcibly so. Yeah, that's true. I mean, I, you know, I found that um, encountering death in some way is a really powerful trigger of transformation. You know, as you say, it prompts this massive reevaluation. But, but more importantly than that, it sort of it stops people taking life for granted. You know, I think one of the ways in which we're asleep is that we normally take life for granted. You know, we, we know sort of we know that we're going to die as a kind of abstract idea. But it's not really a reality to us, you know, until we actually encounter death hmm. in some way, until, until life is, our life is threatened by an accident or an illness or something yeah. similar. And then it's like, wow, you know, I'm alive. Life is temporary. Life is fragile. You know, life is a gift. You know, the world, I'm just here for a certain amount of time. And, you know, life is it's a, it's a privilege to be alive in this world at this time. So, and that just that just doesn't just apply to life itself. It applies to the people in our lives. That you know, we're only, we're only going to know them for a certain amount of time. Everything is fragile. Everything is temporary, but everything becomes more more valuable as a result. Hmm. And yeah, so another thing is we only we realize we only have a limited time. So there's no point procrastinating. We have to, you know, live authentically. We have to fulfill. Uh, you know, our, our impulses and our ambitions and so forth. So it has a massively um, invigorating and awakening effect. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and so you, because there's a couple of books that I'm, I'm sort of interested to discuss today, and then they're, they're probably, I think they're your two um, most recent ones. Um, and the one, that, The Leap, um, which is the psychological, uh, the psychology of spiritual awakening, you talk about um, wakefulness in that quite a bit. Um, so mm-hmm. I assume that's more aligned with you know waking up from this sleep state that you that you talk about. Exactly, yeah. The, the kind of premise of the book is that we are normally asleep. Uh, we live in this kind of restricted half reality, you know, taking life for granted, you know, not 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 vividly aware of the reality around us. But then, yeah, then we, you know, as I say, it can happen through. A sudden shock, like an encounter with death or um, intense psychological turmoil, but it can happen very gradually as well. I mean, a lot of people follow spiritual paths. It could be um, the Eightfold Path of Buddhism. It could be the Path of Yoga or something similar. And basically, they're, they're trying to do the same thing in a more gradual way. They're trying to hmm. expand their awareness. They're trying to transcend the limitations of normal human consciousness. Uh, they're trying to transcend separateness, their sense of separateness. Uh, they're trying to become more aware of the depths of their own being. So, yeah, that's what I mean by um, wakefulness in, in that book. So when you say we are essentially asleep, is, is that like is that a typical state of the human nature or is that something more found um, through our modern lives and, and the way we do things and, and live our lives these days? I think it's a typical human state. I think, um, you know, it's probably been our normal state for most of recorded history. Right. You know? Okay. Um, and I think there, I mean, it's, it's interesting to compare uh, the childhood state. You know, I, I've written quite a bit about the, uh, the perceptions and, and the awareness of young children. And, you know, the young children do seem to experience this heightened reality. You know, we can sometimes remember it ourselves in our own childhood. Uh, everything's more, somehow more real and everything's more exhilarating. And that's because the world is unfamiliar. It's, it's new, it's new and unfamiliar. Yeah, novel and new. Yeah, that's right. And um, we're experiencing everything for the first time. And it's just like, you know, you, you, you can barely imagine how exhilarating and how wonderful, how kind of awe-inspiring the world is to, to young children, you know, if, you know, unless we have memories of it. But um, So in, in, our, in our, I guess, in our, uh, our earliest stages in life, we're more awake and then I guess gradually we, we sleep. Exactly, yeah. I mean, I wouldn't say that we need to go back to, to being young children because there are many ways, of course, and there are obviously many yeah. ways in which being an adult is a, is a progression, a massive progression. And, you know, we can't go back. We wouldn't want to go back. But there are certain elements of it. 
uh, that kind of intense, fresh perception, that kind of natural, I call it natural wakefulness. You know, that's something we've lost as the something we lose as we become adults. Yeah, you can certainly, you know, observing them, you can see. I've got a couple of young kids myself, so you can see that that level of energy and curiosity and enjoyment for the moment. And I guess that, that's yeah. probably an important part of it too is that they don't seem uh, caught up in the past or, or, or stressed about what's no. going to happen in the future, you know? Yeah, it's a lot to do with being present. You know, young children are intensely present. You know, the future doesn't really exist for them. The past doesn't really exist. So they gave they give their whole attention to the present moment, and that's part of the part of the reason why it's so real for them. Uh, but as we become adults, as we sort of move through adolescence and into adulthood, you know, we begin to we you know abstract thinking begins to dominate our minds. With this kind of associational thought chatter begins to fill our minds. We accumulate a lot of concepts about reality. Mm. And so, you know, we become, we, we get lost in the kind of fog of abstract thought, thinking about the future, thinking about the past, kind of daydreaming. And, you know, so we, we become less present and also less awake. Yeah. So, and what, what about, you know, how, how do you sort of see society and the cultures around the world today as far as well, the sleeping state i think that, you know there are um, well one of the things that i've i've suggested in my books in the leap and also a, an earlier book called the fall yeah um one of the things i suggested is that some of the world's indigenous peoples are also naturally awake to a degree yeah uh, they also seem to have a more intense perception of the world around them and they also don't often don't seem to have the the intense sense of kind of individuality and separateness that we have you know the sense that we are individuals living in our own mental space in our own bodies separate from other people separate from the world around us they don't have the same sort of sense of being autonomous separate individuals in the way that we have and um you know the Obviously, a lot of indigenous peoples were colonized and conquered and, you know, they suffered cultural disruption, cultural destruction. So, you know, their cultures obviously don't exist in the same way they did two or three hundred years ago. Hmm. But um, but if you look into the, the original reports of anthropologists from 200, 300 years ago, or the reports of travelers and missionaries, you know, they, they often they often said that indigenous peoples like the Native Americans were not religious in the sense that we understand it. They were more kind of spiritual. They had this sense that all things were pervaded with a kind of energy, a kind of spiritual energy, which they called the great spirit or the great mystery. And all things were somehow interconnected and all things were were part of the same reality. You know, there was no separateness. And they were also part of this, too. They sensed that their own beings were part of this wider spiritual reality so yeah that's kind of unfortunately i think that's kind of largely disappeared from the world hmm. uh, in modern times yeah i guess i mean the, the whole idea of you know spiritual uh, spirituality or walking a spiritual path i mean uh, the pendulum seems to have swung where a lot of people are skeptical about this word spirituality now um and maybe maybe they sort of push it away a little bit because they associate it with a sort of more religious sort of ideals or practices rather than this connection with nature and, and everything else. Yeah, possibly. Yeah. But I think, you know, it is a growing trend in the, in the modern world that there is a lot of interest in spiritualities in a sense, we're kind of turning full circle. And in a sense, we seem to be recapturing the kind of the natural spirituality of indigenous peoples or even children, but in a different way, in a more kind of mature, hmm. um, integrated way. So that's a kind of positive sign. Yeah, and I think I think it's also it is moving beyond religions or even beyond spiritual traditions. You know, a lot of people. Um, well, there's a, there's a very strong trend of declining church attendance in in Europe. Yeah. I'm not sure about Australia, but um, be the same. But yeah, the, the, yeah, but at the same time, there's this increasing interest in spirituality outside religion. You know, and it's all based on this idea of, or this impulse to transcend ordinary awareness and to gain a more expansive or more intense vision of reality. So, why do you think people are globally, um, particularly in the Western cultures, waking up 
to this and, and pursuing these ideals. It, it's not oh, well. I don't assume it's just because it's you know people are talking about it and it's sort of trendy. I, I assume that's because maybe there is a deeper state of turmoil that we're experiencing um, collectively, globally. Mm. Yeah, it could be that. Yeah, that's an interesting point. It, it could be you know similar process to the way that on an individual basis. Hmm. People experience intense turmoil, and as a result, they they undergo an awakening. Yeah, something similar could be happening on a collective basis. That as we encounter more turmoil as a species collectively, maybe it's spurring on this process of kind of collective awakening. That's possible. But also, I also think there's a lot of dissatisfaction with um, the materialist paradigm of reality. You know, the kind of standard secular model of reality which suggests that we're basically genetic machines and uh, mm. the mind is produced by the brain and so on you know the standard sort of materialist assumptions i think a lot of people are sort of questioning these and um you know intuiting that you know there there is a kind of that they don't um tell the truth about reality that there is something more um so i think that's a factor as well there's, there's definitely a the beginnings of a cultural shift underway, I think, beyond um, the kind of materialist paradigm. Yeah, right. So this materialist paradigm, um, but people just aren't finding the answers there that we thought uh, we, we may find, uh, such as, you know, more meaning in life, more purpose in life, things like that? Or Yeah. I mean, for, you know, strictly speaking, from, um, from the materialist paradigm, you know, there was really no purpose to life apart from reproduction and survival. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's that's not enough to satisfy us. That's why you know uh, some people still turn to religion because that provides a different kind of purpose. But from a, a kind of spiritual perspective outside religion, mm. the purpose of life becomes self development becomes another purpose of life. And once you engage, you begin to engage in self development. You do, you know, you, you experience it. Um, well, you find that there is more, you know, there is, there are wider realities beyond our normal awareness. There is a more expansive vision of reality, which we can experience. Um, and, you know, we do have the power to change our state of being. We do have the power to expand our awareness Hmm. and to gain a, a wider vision of reality. So how do we, how do we go about, um, I suppose, becoming aware, first of all, if we are asleep or not, and then, you know, going about waking up. And uh, the sort of questions I have about this whole idea of becoming more spiritually connected uh, with everything and, you know, following a more spiritual path in life is where do we, I mean, do we find a balance with with this because we're living in a a world that's um, sort of, now under the materialistic sort of paradigm that you talk about you know we have jobs we we have houses we buy cars all this sort of thing where do we find the balance in that and and what are the sort of practices we can do to wake up yeah that's um yeah interesting question um i think it's, it's very organic when it begins to happen um it doesn't take you out of the world in some ways it takes you more into the world hmm. um you know, one of one of the one of the sort of primary facets of awakening experiences is a sense of connection. You become more connected to other people, uh, so it means you become more empathic towards other people and more compassionate and more altruistic. And there's also, you know, when awakening occurs on a permanent basis in a permanent transformation, there's often a shift that people undergo from a kind of self-seeking materialistic way of life to a much more altruistic contributory piece uh, mode of life. So they, they shift from accumulation to contribution. They want to, you know, the primary aim of their life is no longer to have a good time or to become rich or to get as much success as they can. The primary aim is to make a contribution to help other people, to help the world in some way, to improve, you know, um, the plight of human beings so there's a, this shift from materialism to altruism, which is very common. And so in, in that sense, it takes you more, it makes you more involved with other human beings. And it gives you, a, that kind of altruism gives you a strong sense of purpose as well. That becomes the primary aim of your life. 
And absolutely, you can see that quite. You know, it's it's yeah, you can see that in in society these days, both on the individual level, but also you know companies and stuff like that that are, are sort of got that same sort of um, altruistic sort of level of focus. Yeah, yeah, I think so. Yeah, and um, yeah, you mentioned practices and techniques of. Uh, yeah. inducing these experiences yeah how, so do, we, how do we know if we're asleep like i mean is it is it something that you could say yep this is how you'd identify that or does it just come to the person well, saying well yeah i am walking with my head in the sand well it's tricky because you can, you can only really become aware that you're asleep once you wake up um, <laughs> otherwise you just go on sleeping so it usually takes uh, an awakening experience to make people realize that they're asleep. And I'm quite, you know, I'm not a big advocate of psychedelics. I'm, I'm quite dubious about psychedelics because they can cause a lot of psychological, psychological damage to people, yeah. uh, particularly if they're taken very regularly. Mm-hmm. But I'm aware of a lot of cases um, in my research when a psychedelic experience has been very fruitful to people because it's, it's, it has given them a glimpse of a more intense reality it literally has made them aware that they are asleep because suddenly they've, they've experienced this much more intense, much more real world. And suddenly it's like, wow, you know, this is the way things really are. You know, I was, I was living in this kind of limited reality and now I've experienced something bigger, something transcendent. So I, now I know it's there. Now mm. I know that I was asleep. So, you know, fortunately in a lot of cases that um, motivates people to, to try to get to that place again, but not through psychedelics, taking more psychedelics, but through practicing meditation, through following some kind of spiritual path like Buddhism or, or yoga, for example. Yeah. So it, it, that can wake people up and that can motivate them to, you know, to return to that place hmm. in a more organic, integrated way. Yeah, you can definitely see like um, I hear a lot about ayahuasca experiences and all that these days. Um, yeah. which are very much controlled and then take people through that experience. Um, so I guess, I mean, people become aware to, to, to understand whether they're asleep or not, they actually already have a slight level of awareness that perhaps, yeah, there's something more to life than they're actually experiencing. And that's when they go out and seek maybe a psychedelic experience or go out there and, and practice yoga or meditation or things like that. Yeah, yeah. I guess the most famous example of that was a, um, a Harvard psychologist uh, called Richard Alpert in the 1960s. Okay. And he became one of the pioneers of research into psychedelics. And he obviously had his own psychedelic experiences. But he sensed early on that, you know, that although psychedelics could give him this glimpse of a, a more intense reality of this uh, powerful, transcendent world beyond normal awareness, he realized that, you know, the way to go wasn't to carry on taking psychedelics. The way to go was to, you know, to follow um, spiritual practice. So he went to India, learned yoga, learned meditation. And he became a, a spiritual teacher, he changed his name to Ram Das. And he's still, yeah, he's still quite famous now. But he guess he's one of the most famous examples of how psychedelics can wake somebody up and, uh, you know, put them on a, a spiritual path. Yeah, absolutely. So, I mean, other than psychedelics, I guess there is the opportunities to um, so find some sort of mindfulness training, whether that be um, a meditation practice or yoga or um, even maybe yeah. as simple as, as you mentioned earlier, you know, just getting out in nature more. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Maybe meditation is obviously also a, a great source of awakening experiences. I remember when I... Um, when I was 18, as I said before, I was brought up in this kind of secular environment. So I kind of absorbed the materialistic paradigm, the idea that, you know, only the brain and the body really exist and the mind is a product of the brain. So when I went to a, a talk about meditation when I was 18 and 19 years old, um, the teacher was, the meditation, uh, the speaker was saying things like, um, you know, when you meditate, you can experience the natural bliss of consciousness. Or when you meditate, you can um, you can explore the deepest um, the deepest facets of your own consciousness. I thought, what the heck is he talking about? This doesn't make any sense. You know, what is this thing called consciousness? You know, I remember mm. thinking, surely I'm just a brain. What's he talking about? Consciousness. But actually, when I began to meditate, which was maybe a couple of years later, you know, I immediately began to experience the the richness of consciousness and i began to understand how in meditation you can 
you know, you can touch into a natural well-being, natural quality of well-being, uh, which seems to be a natural quality of consciousness itself. Um, so, you know, I think for a lot of people, meditation can also be um, a source practice. of awakening. Mm. Yeah, you talk about, um, you know, shifting consciousness. Um, and on one level, I sort of can understand it. And, and I think you refer to it as being a fundamental essence of, of our reality. What What is the idea about shifting consciousness? What is that? Well, um <clears throat> Well, yeah, it relates to awakening experiences, okay. um, which we've been talking about. But uh, I'm also suggesting that um, on a collective level, we are, you know, maybe um, beginning to experience, as I mentioned before, a kind of shift. And you know, I've mentioned before that a normal awareness is quite limited, that we live in a kind of sleep. And so much human culture, so much human behavior is determined by this state of sleep that we experience. And because one of the facets of sleep is separateness. We have this sense of separateness of being kind of uh, entities living in our own mental space in separateness from the world around us. And I think this sense of separateness creates a, a basic level of isolation and anxiety. And it leads to behavior like um, consumerism, hedonism, status seeking, and so on. Um, but I think that collectively there may be a kind of shift where we're beginning to intuit that there are, you know, that this, well, basically that we are, I think maybe we are beginning to wake up collectively in a, in a kind of small way. We're beginning to realize that we are asleep and we're beginning to collectively move beyond sleep towards, um, you know, a more wakeful vision of the world. Okay. So that's in regard to sort of shifting consciousness at the, the global level, collective level. Yeah, I think there are some signs that there is a, a kind of... Well, that's why my book is called The Leap, because I'm suggesting that there is an evolutionary leap on mm. the way. Yeah. That, you know, a very slow and gradual process of moving beyond our, our normal sleep state. What do you think that's going to be like for the future? Like, as, as far as this shifting state of consciousness and and how... Because I can only imagine that such a movement will shift a lot of the fundamental ways we do things and, and how we live our lives. Yeah, I mean, I think it's happening already, you know. I mean, if you look at the world right now, it doesn't, you know, it looks pretty bleak right now, you know, with a lot of political upheavals. There's been a slight return to nationalism. And, uh, you know, we, we, we seem to be in the midst of potentially catastrophic environmental changes. Hmm. So it looks pretty bleak in some ways. But I, th I think if you go back 300 years, I, I in, in my book, The Fall, I suggest that the the second half of the 18th century was a very sort of pivotal time in human history. And that was largely because, you know, the shift I'm talking about seemed to originate at that time. It seemed to become manifest or visible at that time. And that was the time when there was a sudden interest in rights, animal rights, women's rights, the rights of slaves and so on. A lot of movements began at that time, you know, the animal rights movement, the women's rights movement. Punishments became less brutal um, in Western Europe. And there was a sudden interest in egalitarianism as well and democracy and ideas like that. Hmm. And in, in culture, there was the, the romantic movement in poetry and music, which emphasized connection with nature and exploration of one's own inner life. Hmm. So I think it was, that, was a, that was a really significant time in Europe, um, it was a sort of a significant shift, and it suggested a move beyond separateness, a move beyond uh, individuality and separateness, a move, a movement towards empathy and compassion, and so on. And so that you know, that's why even now, despite the the bleakness of contemporary affairs, you know, if we, we you compare the way we live now to the way that human beings lived, say, three hundred and four hundred years ago. You know, we're, we're infinitely more compassionate. You know, there is much more emphasis on other people's well-being and other people's rights. You can't really imagine how brutal and violent and cruel human beings were 400 years ago. Mm. Um, so that, I think this, that's part of it, this movement beyond separates to increased empathy, increased connection. And that's, that's still happening now. And I think that there's a kind of like a rearguard movement against it, which I think explains why we're undergoing this resurge of nationalism. And a kind of resurgence of patriarchal, egocentric values, and that's kind of like a rearguard action against this, you know, rising interconnection, 
and increasing empathy. And even the internet could be, you could, you could say that the internet is part of this too, this movement towards increasing connection. Yeah, so some of these other movements are, are, are people that are, f- are fearful of the un- unknown future or uh, perhaps you know trying to protect it or protect themselves or their own self-interests. I think so, yeah. They're, they're, yeah, you could see it as a battle between patriarchy and, not matriarchy, but patriarchy and egalitarianism. You know, you could, you could see it as a battle between sleep and wakefulness. You know, the old values of sleep are patriarchy, and environmental domination, power, and so forth. Right. The, yeah, values, of we- the values of wakefulness are empathy, connection, uh, egalitarianism, and so on. So there's a, there's a clash of two, two kinds of consciousness, actually, two, two different ways of, of being. And, you know, that's what's being played out at the moment. Oh, it's interesting. It goes sort of hand in hand with the, the, the tech movement as well and AI and all that sort of stuff coming in. And, and a lot of people say those fundamentals, like you talk about compassion, empathy, and stuff, are the things that um, certainly humans are going to still uh, be exceedingly great at, not not computers or tech. Um, and perhaps that's a good reason to shift towards you know that spiritual um, wakefulness as well. Yeah, that's true. I think yeah, I think um, you know there's a lot of excitement about AI and machine consciousness, but it's difficult to see how machines could develop empathy and compassion. Uh, in the way that human beings experience it, so I think that's you know that's something special about human beings, or maybe to an extent other animals too. But certainly, it's difficult how that to see how that could be you know simulated in machines or computers. Yeah, absolutely. So tell us a little bit um, just on your new book, uh, Spiritual Science. So why science needs spirituality to make sense of the world. Um, what was the purpose of writing this book? Well, it kind of addresses some of the topics we've talked about. Um, but the, the basic idea of the book is, is really that the, the standard model of science, I think, is, is completely wrong. And it doesn't offer a satisfactory explanation of the world. You know, there are, there are so many um, aspects of human behavior or aspects of the world which can't be explained in, the sta- in terms of the standard scientific model. So consciousness is one example, you know, Nobody really knows where consciousness comes from or how it's associated with the brain. I'm um, also thinking about altruism. You can't. It's difficult to explain altruism in standard scientific terms. Also, yeah. um, how the how the mind can influence the body, for example, in terms of the placebo effect, that can't be explained in scientific terms, normal scientific terms. And even evolution, I think you know we have this standard so-called neo-Darwinist view of evolution. But a lot of uh, modern biologists are becoming aware of how problematic it is, and they're suggesting that evolution is actually much more complex and mysterious than the standard model suggests. So uh, really in the book, I go through all of these different areas of science, and I highlight the problems um, of explaining these these areas, these phenomena, Mm. in standard scientific terms. And I suggest a different explanation based on spiritual principles. And really by spiritual principles, it just means... um, based on the assumption or the premise that um, there is a kind of underlying spiritual force or energy in the universe, or you could call it consciousness, you could call it a kind of fundamental consciousness which pervades the universe. Hmm. Do you think science will make, uh, uh, make uh, what am I looking for? I can't even think at this time of the day. <laughs> Do you think science will make progress into understanding consciousness and, and how that all works? only if it changes uh, the premise um, on which it operates only if it, if it well I mean only if it drops the assumption that consciousness is produced by the brain you know but about 30 years ago there was a lot of interest in consciousness and a lot of scientists began to study the brain to try to work out how it produces consciousness but they basically drew a blank you know 30 years later we're still waiting for a, an explanation mm. or a coherent theory there are so many different theories but a lot of them are contradictory and, and none of them are satisfactory. So a lot of people are now beginning to drop the assumption. A lot of um, scientists and philosophers are shifting to more kind of, um, well, alternative ways of expanding consciousness, that it's not produced by the brain. Um, well, one, one possibility is to say that consciousness is something fundamental in the universe. That's suggested by, you know, the Australian philosopher David Chalmers. I'm not sure if you heard of him. Okay. But, um, 
but he he has this view that consciousness is a fundamental quality of the universe like gravity or mass yeah, right. um so it, it's out there you know consciousness is, is is in everywhere um so you know it does, it's not produced by the brain because it's already ex, it already, ex, already exist, existed so i'm suggesting in my book that the the purpose of the brain is not to produce consciousness but to receive it and transmit it all right well that's sort of consciousness is already around mm. us yeah so yeah, you think uh, of like a newborn you know i mean they they uh, they are born and then they have a consciousness mm. which would suggest that it's not pre-existing to that individual person um, but if it is if the brain is actually there just to receive that that connection that connection to this universal consciousness and then that would make yeah make a fair bit of sense yeah that's right so i think you know that's an example of how science could explain consciousness but it has to drop um, one of its assumptions, he has to shift into a more spiritual mode. Right. I think it's the same with um, the the influence of the mind over the body, how the mind can sometimes heal the body, how mental intentions can sometimes make yeah. you, um, you know, have a kind of pain-killing effect so that it acts as an anesthetic. Hmm. Um, but if you, if you adopt the idea that mind is actually more fundamental than matter, matter is not, um, matter doesn't produce the mind, in a sense, mind is more fundamental to the universe than matter. So mind can have an effect on matter. So, the, I mean, the matter of our own bodies, you know, so mental intentions and thoughts can actually have a you know, powerful healing effect on the, on the body. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and on one's, you know, life and overall well-being. And then again, another reason perhaps to uh, take ourselves away from a sleep state into a more of a wakefulness state. Yeah, I mean, certainly. I mean, there's, there's such a strong link between uh, stress, for example, and an illness. And doctors say that um, around a third of illnesses are physically unexplained. So they're, they're due to psychosomatic factors or mental factors, psychological factors. So, yeah, it's a, it's a, it's a great, um, you know, a great motivation to, to relax and to meditate and spend time in nature and, you know, to avoid stress. Because, you know, you, it will have a powerful effect on your body and you will, you know, become healthier as a result. Yeah, well, Steve, uh, appreciate, appreciate the conversation, mate. What, um, out of your books, which, which would you recommend uh, people pick up? Because you've got, you've got a few of them. Um, which would you recommend picking up and having a read of first? Uh, well, uh, my book, The Leap, seems to be the best-selling one so far. Okay. Uh, a lot of people seem to be it's the one I receive uh, most emails about a lot of people tell, tell me that it's helped them to understand their own experiences and given them a context to uh, to make sense of what's happened to them um, yeah so The Leap's probably a good one okay. and I also I wrote a book called The Fall um, about 12 years ago now I briefly mentioned that before that's also you know, had a lot of attention and, um, I've had a lot of appreciative, appreciative emails about that too. So probably those two books, the fall and the leap. Cool, man. I'll, I'll stick it in the show notes, uh, for those uh, listening and also your website, Steve Taylor.com, uh, Stephen Taylor, uh, Stephen M Taylor. And, uh, yeah. Stephen M Taylor.com. <laughs> Stephen M Taylor.com. So guys, check it out. Uh, episode 674. I think this is, um, at wow. the show notes, you can um, take a look at the links, the books there, um, support the show, support Steve, and uh, grab yourself a copy as well by using those links. Uh, Steve, I've got a few quick questions to ask you. Okay. You ready? Yes. Yeah. Uh, first question, do you have any routines or rituals you believe contribute to your success? Um, yeah. Uh, meditation. I like to meditate uh, every day, although I don't always get the chance, but I try to. Mm-hmm. And exercise, I love I love to go running. I love to go swimming. Um, I find exercise has a, a powerful meditative effect as well. Yeah, me too. Tell us about your meditation practice. What does that look like? Um, well, I follow these. I've, I've tried a few different ones and occasionally shift to different techniques. I probably have like five different techniques that I sometimes use. But these days, the one I use is a, is a Buddhist technique of focusing on different parts of your body. So you just bring your attention to different parts of the body, 
bringing it down to the kind of um, the lower stomach area. And um, I find it works really well. It really settles down the mind and, um, you know, it's a very stilling, calming effect. Okay. And how, how long does that, do you do that in the morning, certain times of the day? Yeah. Uh, I try to do it for half an hour in the morning. Yeah. And uh, sometimes I, you know, I tune back into it for maybe 10 minutes later in the day. Okay, cool. What advice would you give your 20-year-old self? Wow. <laughs> I say stop smoking and drinking. And uh, <laughs> phew, I would say... Um, mm, keep going. Uh, don't be disheartened and uh, accept your difference. Don't think that there's anything wrong with you because hmm. there's actually something right with you. So that, that time, as I explained earlier, you know, I did think there was something wrong with me. I, I didn't really understand myself. I was quite alienated and depressed. Yeah, okay. Um, when you say you know, stop smoking and drinking, you just triggered a question that I want to ask you. Um, other than your teenage experiences where you had those sort of awakening experiences, was there a point in your life where you sort of felt you were asleep and you actually had that, that sort of awakening? Uh, not really. There, there wasn't a sudden point. There was a time in my life when I, uh, I was a musician in my early twenties and, um, uh, I got caught up in quite a sort of, you know, hedonistic musician's lifestyle, staying up late and drinking a lot smoking a lot and I sort of you know I fell away from my my previous experiences I had sort of I'd had awakening experiences before then but I kind mm. of lost contact with that side of myself because of the life I was leading I was in a kind of you know difficult relationship with my girlfriend as well and so on um so that was really the only time when I sort of fell away and lost myself a little bit but yeah you know and that time I, I did have a, a very powerful experience around then which sort of you know um which brought me back to my path and you know took me in the right direction again. Okay. Yeah, cool. What um how how would you define success? Uh well I don't think of it in financial terms. I'm not interested in money. Um for me success means uh creativity. It means continuing to be creative and it means being surprised by my own my own creativity. You know, it's, it's sort of latching onto a flow of creativity and allowing that to sort of carry me and take me in different directions. That's what um you know, that's what I enjoy most. Hmm. And you know, it, it, I, so when I create a book or a poem, I write poetry too. Uh, sometimes music, I write bits of music too. Yeah, that's uh, success for me, I guess. Yeah, cool. I like that. Uh, I'm sure a lot of people can relate um, to that sort of feeling. Um, mm. What is what is a tool, skill, resource, or technique that has helped you improve your overall effectiveness or productivity the most? Mm, interesting question. I mean, I'd have to say meditation. Yeah. Um, again, uh, but also. You know, the physical side of things, I mentioned exercise. I only really started exercising uh, probably seven or eight years ago. And it's basically because I got into my 40s then and I thought, wow, I better start looking after my body. Hmm. Uh, and, I, I, yeah, and I, I, I find the exercise really invaluable. It, it really creates a feeling of alertness and it makes me more awake, you know, going back to the idea of wakefulness. Um, so I've, I've really become aware of the, the importance of physical health and how that contributes to, to mental and spiritual health. So I'd have to say uh, running, swimming, going to the gym, and cycling, different forms of exercise. They, that's really benefited, benefited me a lot. Yeah, nice. With uh, these are a couple of uh, quick sort of round questions. If I was to serve you your last meal, what would you request? <laughs> wow. View. That's a tricky one. Mm. I'm, you know, I, I try to be a vegetarian. I'm not a strict vegetarian. Occasionally I eat meat. Um, but I think if it was my last meal, I would have to go for a, um, 
mm, an Indian curry of some kind, maybe a chicken curry or a vegetable curry or um, a lentil curry or something like that. I like Indian food. Yeah, likewise. Nice one. Now, <laughs> what activity gives you the greatest sense of joy? Wow. Um it's difficult to pin down one actually because there's, there's so many. Like, like we've mentioned creativity. Uh, I guess that's the main focus in my life, creativity. But also being with my kids, I've got three young kids, and I, I love playing football with the kids. I love going to the park and playing football with the kids. I love all all contact with nature. I love walking in the countryside, cycling by the canal or the river. So I'd say um, I'd say creativity, nature, and playing with my kids. Yeah, cool. And if you could pass down one book to your children uh, other than your own, what book would you <laughs> pick? Wow. Um, I would say The Power of Now by Eckhart Tolle. Um, that's one of my favorite books. It's also quite simple as well. It's, it's quite a powerful book because it's so simple and, and so direct. And I know a lot of people, including myself, who've you know, been quite powerfully affected by that book. It has a quite, quite an uncanny, uh, simple and direct power. Yeah, cool. I'll stick that one in the show notes as well as uh, a few of yours, Steve. So um, guys listening, check it out at thehidden.com again, episode 674, uh, and use those links within. That would help the show. Steve, um, what quote, phrase or message would you text or tweet to everyone in the world? Phew. Wow. That's a, that's a good question. Uh Mm. I'd say this is a, I think it's adapted from, it's called the serenity prayer and in Alcoholics Anonymous. So I've just adapted it from that. Um, so I, I'd say a very brief one, accept whatever you cannot change. Accept whatever you cannot change. Yeah, that's because, you know, we spend so much time in our lives trying to change or feeling frustrated or resentful about things that we can't do anything about, mm. you know? So sometimes you just have to let go and just accept what yeah. is there. You have to accept the situation. It's a good one. I can probably relate to something in my life right now where that's the case. Um, yeah, it's, it's just completely a complete, not a waste of energy. You mm. know, just, it's so much more productive to just let go and accept it and move on. Or, you know, it doesn't mean you can't change the situation, but, Sometimes in order to change it, you first have to accept it. Yeah, yeah. I like it. Um, another question there for you that popped up into my head. Uh, anyway, it might come back. Do you believe we all have a hidden wire or purpose? Hmm, I think so, yeah. Um, I did a TED Talk once about purpose, and the, you know, I presented the idea that... Um, it's not a question of finding your purpose kind of out there in the world. It's a question of uncovering your purpose. We all have a kind of authentic self, I think, which is sometimes covered over by conditioning or maybe by fear. Um, but sometimes, you know, when you're living in an authentic way, you can latch onto this inner purpose. Sometimes it can be creative. Hmm. Sometimes it can be altruistic. Um, sometimes it could be, you know, self-development. It could be a spiritual self-development, self-developmental purpose. But it's always there. So I think everybody has a certain, you know, purpose somewhere inside them. Hmm. But, you know, in a lot, in a lot of cases we, we've lost contact with it or we can't find it inside us. I suppose when people, and this is sort of actually the questions come to me, but when, when people start to sort of become more aware and wake up, um, there's there's some level of struggle that they will f stumble into, and I can certainly relate to this uh, on, a, on a pretty, I guess, major level. It's where you start to realise some of the things that, uh, or how you live your life, um, just don't really add up or don't really create any level of meaning or importance to you. Uh, and mm. the biggest one would be, you know, what most people call their job. Um, yeah. you know, they wake up to that fact. What are your thoughts on that? Like how do people juggle that? Cause it's, it's something that's, you know, it'd be nice to say, yeah, just pack it all up and, and chase after what you want to do, you know, go out there and be more creative and do that sort of thing or whatever. But it's, it's, 
often easier mm. said than done. Yeah, it can be tricky. You know, you, you've got to be practical to some extent. If you've got kids um, to look after, then you can't just give up your job. And yeah. same with you. If you're attached to a mortgage, you can't just give up your job and end up job and end up in debt. But um, but you have to live authentically. You know, I think when that does happen, when people feel frustrated about their lives, even when they get depressed, you know, I think that's a major source of depression is that people find their lives unfulfilling. They're trapped in jobs which are fairly monotonous and which which don't don't give them any flow or any degree of fulfillment. And, you know, from day in, day out, they go to these jobs and the frustration builds up inside them. Mm. And eventually it may build into depression or a kind of breakdown. And, you know, I think that's, that's more common than most of us realize. Absolutely. And yeah, so when those signals appear, you've got to follow them. You have to allow them to... To, to manifest themselves. So it may, maybe, you know, I wouldn't advise somebody to suddenly give up their job, but you should start exploring different possibilities. You know, at the same time as being a little bit practical, you can change your life. You know, you can, you're always free to change your life to something more productive. And, you know, you have to follow these impulses. If you don't follow them, then the frustration will just build up and you become more depressed. And I think a lot of people, when they have a, you know, sometimes people talk about a midlife crisis. And I think that's often because people have lived this way for many years until they reach middle age. And suddenly the frustration is just too much. They realize that they've been kind of wasting their lives doing unfulfilling things. And, you know, sometimes they take refuge in alcohol or drugs or in buying unnecessary things. But really what they should do is follow this intuition to find a, a more fulfilling way of life. Because, you know, we, we live in a, you know, we're, we're, most of us who live in affluent countries, mm. we're extremely fortunate. We do have lots of opportunities, lots of lifestyles which are open to us. So, you know, you, you have to explore those opportunities. Yeah, yeah, good advice. What does living life with passion and purpose mean to you? Um, it means living authentically means uh, following my my own purpose it means you know and i know i know what it is i feel what it is when i'm sort of aligned with it i have this strong sort of flowing forward motion and you know i know that i'm living in the the way i'm supposed to and it, it means following my creativity following my impulse uh, to contribute to the human race in some way uh, through my writings through my books through my through my teachings. Um, and it also means um, allowing what's inside me to express itself. You know, I think many people probably probably have this feeling, but I certainly do. I have this feeling that there's a lot inside me. And my, ro my role is to allow that to express itself. You know, there are things inside me which I'm, I'm not conscious of. And, you know, slowly these, these things are, you know, they're growing, they're expanding getting ready to express themselves yeah and it's up to me to to allow that process to not get in the way if you like to just allow it to to manifest itself yeah cool very cool and what, what do you believe is the underlying motivation behind everything you do mm. <laughs> uh, i think it's a, a desire to contribute um, so we mentioned this cultural shift, mm. even an evolutionary shift. So I think, I feel that my role is to contribute to this shift. I've always felt that in my writings, I'm really contributing to a shift that's underway. And I think it's, yeah. it's getting more and more urgent. You know, there was this um, UN panel on climate change, which released some, a report earlier this week, showing that, you know, the world is heading to, heading for a catastrophic climate change yeah and so it's, it's urgent you know it's not just a question of um getting governments to try to reduce carbon emissions that's important but it's much more than that it's about changing the way we relate to the world it's about changing our experience of the world it's about uh, finding a new connection to nature it's about letting go of uh, you know the accumulative desire to become rich and to exploit the natural world and to build up resources and so on it's about, you know, finding a new way of being. Um, so, I, yeah, I feel that everything I do is directed towards that goal. Trying to contribute towards that, yeah. And, and contribution is, is one that certainly um, I hear a lot of people talking about both in the show, but um, 
out there as well, contribution or, mm. you know, serving others, etc. Um, and it just made yeah, me think it's... maybe if there is a universal consciousness um, that we sort of all plug into, um, perhaps that's what's um, sort of sort of happening then, you know, with this shifting consciousness globally. Yeah, I think so. Yeah, that, that's my uh, that's my feeling, and you know, I try to describe that in my book, The Leap. You know, the sense that we're all part of this evolutionary process, and from the beginning of time, evolution has been about. Um, well, it's been partly about uh, the diversity of, of life forms and the increased complexity of life forms, but it's also been about the increasing consciousness of life forms. You know, how living beings become more and more aware of reality. Hmm. And so, in a sense, we're just really following the same process. We're following the same process of expanding our awareness. Um, so that's why it feels right when we do these things, because we're following the, the evolutionary process, which has been underway for millions, billions of years. Yeah. Yeah, well said. But uh, thanks for the brilliant conversation. I've really enjoyed it. Yeah, me too. Yeah. Thanks for some interesting questions. How can... Um how can people best reach you, Steve? Is it just through stephenmtaylor.com? Yeah, that's the main place, my website, um, stephenmtaylor.com. But also uh, I'm on Facebook as Steve Taylor Author. I'm on Twitter as SM Taylor Author. So you can find me on uh, Facebook and Twitter as well. Okay. That's cool. I'll stick those links in the show notes, guys, so check it out at thehiddenwire.com. Steve, once again, thanks for coming on, mate, and thanks for your time. You're welcome. Yeah, I really enjoyed it. Thanks for the interview. Alright, until next time, peace, passion and purpose. See you soon. Thanks guys for listening to this episode. I hope you enjoyed what you heard. I hope you love what you're hearing. If you like this episode, guys, or any of the episodes that you're listening to here at The Hidden Why, please do me a favor by sharing it. You can share it with your families. You can share it with your loved ones. You can do that by using your favorite social media channels using the icons on the platform that you're listening to The Hidden Why podcast. Also, guys, if you're a fan of the show, please connect with me. Connect with me at thehiddenwide.com. I love to hear from you. I love to converse with the people that listen to this show to find out what they enjoy, what they don't enjoy, and perhaps if they have any questions or feedback for the show as well. You can stay up to date with all that I'm releasing here, guys. I do a solo show every Monday, a three-minute thought every Thursday. I do two interviews a week on a Wednesday and a Saturday, and a book review every Friday. You can stay up to date with all that by subscribing to my newsletter at thehiddenwire.com. Just enter your email address there, and also subscribing to the podcast on the platform that you choose to listen to your podcasts. You can also support the show, guys, by using the Amazon links at thehiddenwire.com. So if you like books, you can get all the books that I review there um, and anything else, really, that you like to purchase through Amazon. So use that link. It helps support the show. And we've also got a deal with Audible, guys. Audible is a fantastic way to listen to all your favorite books. We've got a deal with them so you can get two free books when you subscribe or, yeah, subscribe to a 30-day free trial. So check that out, again, at thehiddenwire.com. Guys, that's it from me. You know what to do. Go out there. Breathe more passion into every single moment. Do everything with greater purpose and in doing so you will discover your hidden why this is the hidden why my name is Lee Manutzi until next time peace passion and purpose see you soon